We are responsible to honor God with our lives regardless of how he answers our prayers. Earthly prosperity often produces pride. This separates us from God and leads to folly and failure. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. students, if you'd open to 2 Kings 20, 2 Kings 20. The central question, uh, sociological question that all people groups always ask themselves from time immemorial is, who shall rule? That has always been a central question of human governments and human social groups. Israel was unique historically in that it was a theocracy. And God's name, of course, is Theo. Theo means God, ruled by God. It was a nation ultimately ruled by God through the intermediary of human kings and uh, a queen. We have seen uh, in this study of monarchy, Israel's monarchy, which lasted between two and 350 years, that some kings ruled better, some kings ruled worse. Some kings followed the Lord, some kings didn't follow the Lord. God's assessment of Hezekiah is, he says, Hezekiah is unique in that he trusted the Lord, his God, like his father David had done. As those of you know, when we're looking at the monarchy, David is the gold standard by which all kings are measured because he followed the Lord, his God, fully. So let's pick up the narrative and let's look at the last part of Hezekiah's life, uh, 2 Kings 20, verse 1. In those days, Hezekiah became mortally ill, and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, quote, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. And he turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, Remember now, O Lord, I beseech you, how I have walked before you in truth and with a whole heart, and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Here's our first principle. The issue is not, are you going to die? The issue is, are you ready to die? Today. The issue is not, are you going to die? Yes, we're going to die. The issue is, are you ready to die today? So those days, he says in those days, Hezekiah became mortally ill. This was the confluence of time where Jerusalem is under attack by Sennacherib, king of Assyria, in 701 BC. This was the time frame. Judah and the surrounding nations, Philistia, Phoenicia, have already been conquered by the Assyrians, and only Jerusalem remained outside Assyrian control, and their army is surrounding and preparing to siege the city. This is a time of national peril, and that is this precise moment Hezekiah gets word from God, you are going to die now, right? So it's time for him to die, and he says, set your house in order. In other words, make your final will and testament, appoint who's going to rule in your place, tie up any loose ends, say your final goodbyes. Don't leave unfinished business. I'm going to have more to say about that later. 
Don't leave anything done that you should be getting done before you die. It's a sober reminder to us as well. Hebrews 9.27 says, it's appointed for man to die once. So there's no reincarnation. That's the oaky version of reincarnation, right? <laughs> and after this comes judgment. You stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Many people, even Christians, say they're ready to die, but just not today, right? Hezekiah is having a real hard time with this news. He seems to have already been bedridden, and it says he turned his face to the wall, meaning he wants to pray, he wants to be in private. Go away, I want you to be alone. He prays to the Lord and asks God to remember how he has obeyed God, which was very true. He obeyed God fully. He obeyed God with a whole heart. He did what was right in God's sight. He's reminding God of his character and how he walked before him in truth, and he weeps bitterly. And he records his feelings. They're not found in Kings and Chronicles, but they're found in a parallel passage, Isaiah 38. I'm going to read you part of this. In Isaiah 38, beginning at verse 10, Hezekiah, this is after he was healed, he records how he was feeling during this time when he had the sentence of death over his head. And he says, In the middle of my life, I am to enter the gates of Sheol. I am to be deprived of the rest of my years. I said, I will not see the Lord, the Lord in the land of the living. I will look on man no more among the inhabitants of the world. Like a shepherd's tent, my dwelling is pulled up and removed from me. As a weaver, I rolled up my life. He cuts me off from the loom. From day until night, you make an end of me. Verse 18. For Sheol cannot thank you. Death cannot praise you. Those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your thanksgiving. Jump back to verse 16. Oh, restore me to health and let me live. For Sheol cannot thank you. Death cannot praise you. Those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your faithfulness. It is the living who give thanks to you as I do today. A father tells his sons about his faithfulness. So Hezekiah is in a process of lament and mourning and grieving as he contemplates his imminent death because that's in the middle of his life. Now we know that Hezekiah became king at 25 and he reigned 29 years, so we know he died at 54. We also know that God gave him 15 additional years, which means he's now 39, 39 years old, and he has this um, sentence of death. And he says... My life is as short as someone pulling up a stake of a tent, of a shepherd's tent. Now, those of you who've ever gone camping, right? You lay the tent down and you pound the stakes in the ground. When it's time to move the tent, what do you do? You reach in, you pull the stake up, you roll the tent up, and you go. That's what he says. My life is that short. You just kind of pull the tent stakes up in my life, and I'm out of here. He says, as fast as a weaver cuts off a rug from a loom, so you have a loom, and the weaver's weaving the loom, and when they get done, they go, snip, 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 unroll it, boom, done, gone. He says, that's my life. It's going this quickly. Now, I know that most of us feel like life is going quickly, and it is. But if you knew you were going to die tonight, it would seem like it was going a whole lot quicker, right? He says, my whole life has changed in one day when God said, you're going to die and not live. And I, until you get that sentence of death and someone says you have a mortal disease, I don't know that we understand that. We can do it vicariously, but not personally. You and I are old enough to know that all it takes is one phone call from medical personnel, and it can change your life. You've got X, or whatever it happens to be. Now, Hezekiah is mourning because he's going to Sheol. 
He's got a Jewish understanding of death, an Old Testament Jewish understanding of death, and they did believe in immortality. They did believe that the soul would live forever. And that went to a place called Sheol. The Greek for that is Hades. But the particulars of Sheol or Hades were pretty vague. You know, God had not yet revealed the details about heaven and hell like he did in the New Testament. Hezekiah believed, as did the average Jew at that period of time, that when they died, they would live, but they were unable to praise God. They were unable to serve God. They were unable to thank God. In other words, he would be unable to experience the faithfulness of God after death. So death was not this place of personal, conscious, face-to-face experience going into the presence of Jesus. They didn't know that. They believed in conscious life after death, but they didn't have the biblical revelation that it would be a face-to-face relationship with God. So he wanted to live. He wanted to live in order to serve God. He wanted to complete the spiritual restoration of the nation. And perhaps another reason he wept is he had no heir. There was no one to inherit the throne upon his death. That was a significant problem. Remember, God had said what? God promised David, because you've walked with me in faithfulness, there will always be a descendant of your lineage on the throne. Hezekiah 39, no children. God says, you're going to die and not live. Get your house in order. Huh, is the word of God going to be broken? Hezekiah could have concluded that, well, maybe Judah has sinned so grievously that God is done with us, just done with us. This was a real problem. Now, the truth is, Psalm 31, 15, David is writing, and he says what? My times, the days of my life, are in your hand. Psalm 139 gets a little bit more specific. Verse 16, it says, In your book are all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Which means, before I was born, before you were born, God ordained a specific day that will be your first day on earth, and God has ordained a specific day that will be your last day on earth, and God has ordained a specific day that will be your first day in heaven. And the good news is there's no last day in heaven because you're going to stay there forever in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the day you leave earth and instantly arrive in Jesus' presence will be the greatest day of your life. Solomon said the day of your death is greater than the day of your birth. I don't know if he knew what he was talking about. He certainly didn't have a New Testament understanding of what it was like to be in the conscious presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. But I promise you the day you arrive in heaven will be the greatest day of your life. Now, in this case, God heard Hezekiah's prayer, saw his tears, answered him immediately. Now, we would like answers like this. Verse 4, Isaiah says, you're going to die, not live. Quote, before Isaiah had gone out of the middle court, he had barely left the bedroom. The word of the Lord came to him saying, return and say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, or the God of your father David, quote, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears, behold, I will heal you. On the third day, you shall go up to the house of the Lord. I will add 15 years to your life, and I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. And I will defend this city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Then Isaiah said, take a cake of figs, And they took it and laid it on the boil, and he recovered. Here's the principle. 
We are responsible to honor God with our lives regardless of how he answers our prayers. We are responsible to honor God with our lives regardless of how he answers our prayers. So God says, Hezekiah, in three days, you are going to be well enough to get out of bed, go up to the temple to worship, and publicly give thanks to God for your healing. Furthermore, I'm going to give you 15 additional years of life. Now, 15 times 365 is about 5,475 days. For those of you that are wondering, that's about 775 weekends. You all can count that high. 15 years from now, you will be how old? Add him up. Hezekiah was probably the only person outside of our Lord Jesus Christ that knew, you know, how long he was going to live. But you hope and pray that Hezekiah made very good use of that time, that additional time that God promised him. Moses prayed that in light of God's righteous anger against human sin and the brevity of life, God would teach us, Psalm 90, verse 12, this is a prayer, so teach us to what? Number our days so that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Because they're limited, don't waste them. Count them. I read the story of a guy who read Psalm 90, was so convicted, he got this giant jar and bought, I don't know how many hundred, black marbles. And he used one marble for every weekend. He figured out what his actual day to death is, put that many marbles in, and every Saturday morning he took a black marble out. Well, you do that for a few years, you start seeing the level in the jar go down. It's a reminder that time is limited. Don't waste it, right? Since we don't know exactly how many days you have, we should obviously take very good care of it. Samuel Johnston gave us another, uh, he's a great British biographer, he says, quote, Depend on it, sir. When a man knows he is to be hanged in a fortnight, it concentrates his mind wonderfully. If you knew that a fortnight, by the way, is 14 days. That's two weeks. If you knew that two Sundays from now, you were going to die. Two weeks, 14 days. There's a whole bunch of things in your life right now that would be meaningless. You would not spend any energy on because in the light of 14 days to eternity, it would be irrelevant. And there's a few things in your life that would become supremely important right now. So why don't you focus on them right now? Because we live with the delusion that tomorrow will be like today. And it usually is, but not always. Right? The Lord says to every one of us, every single one of us is going, to, is going to have a day like Hezekiah. Today is your departure date. Right? You may not get warning from it either, right? It just may be your day. So Hezekiah, outside our Lord Jesus Christ, probably was the only man who knew much longer he had to live. By the way, thinking about that, Moses probably knew too, because God said, climb Mount Nebo, and at the top, Look over the land, and then you're going to die. And I'll take you to heaven, and I'll bury you. So I've often thought about, here's Moses. He's, he's anointed. He's commissioned Joshua. He's walking up the hill, and he goes, when I get to the top of that thing, I'm dying. The Lord's going to give me an oversight of the land, and then I'm going to lay down and die, and I'm walking to my grave. And I know it. 
walking into heaven is what was happening. So Hezekiah's mortal illness seems to have taken place at a very perilous time. Jerusalem is surrounded by the Assyrian army at this point. And God has promised to deliver the city from the king of Assyria in the future. So we're persuaded by the chronological evidence that Assyria is still outside the city walls. And Isaiah, of course, prescribes a poultice to be put on Hezekiah's boil. He's got a boil. We don't know what disease was, but it was a boil. Verse 8. Now Hezekiah said to Isaiah, What will be the sign that the Lord will heal me, and that I shall go up to the house of the Lord the third day? Isaiah said, This shall be the sign to you from the Lord, that the Lord will do the thing which he has spoken. Shall the shadow go forward ten steps, or go back ten steps? So Hezekiah answered, It's easy for the shadow to decline ten steps. No, but let the shadow turn backward ten steps. Isaiah the prophet cried to the Lord, and he brought the shadow on the stairway back ten steps by which it had gone down on the stairway of Ahaz. Let me give you a little picture of this. Many, many people uh, in that era uh, tried to tell time with sundials, and there's a wide variety of sundials uh, that were in effect, most of them within 100 years after this effect, but there were sundials, many of them were stairways, and they were double stairways, as you can see behind me. One stairway ascending, one stair descending, one stairway facing east, one stairway facing west. So the sun would come up in the east, and would shine on the stairway that was facing east. Then the sun would come over the top, and then the sun would set in the west, and it would shine on the steps facing the west. And what they would do, Ahaz, by the way, built this or modified this stairway, uh, they would use it to tell time. So they would calibrate the size of the steps based on the rotation, and when the sun began to move from east to west, the shadows on the step could be measured, and you could tell the time of day by what the shadow was going on at that point in time. So apparently Hezekiah was able to see this stairway, time clock, from his bedroom. And at the time he was talking to Isaiah, it appears to be in the afternoon because the, the, the sun was setting in the west and the shadows were in the east, right? The shadows were, the sun's over here, the stairway's here, so there's shadows facing the east. And he says, well... You know, uh, you want a sign? What I want is I want the sun to move backwards. I want the shadow to shrink. I don't want the sun to continue to set and the shadows continue to go the way they're going. I want the shadow to come back, which would be obviously fairly miraculous at that point in time. He said, I'll know that God miraculously heard my prayer and healed me when he miraculously intervenes in nature and gives me this supernatural sign. And it's easy for us to say, gosh, why would he do that? Well, Gideon asked for a sign, right? He asked for a fleece to be wet or to be dry. It was not uncommon for Jewish people to ask for a sign. I don't know that this was a sign of a lack of faith. You'll see that God's got purpose behind this in the past. But sometimes we do the same thing. We want to see some evidence of God's promise before he uh, delivers it. I don't always know that that's prudent. I think God's word is sufficient. Now, there's many ideas about how this actual sign occurred. And I have read commentaries till I'm tired. Some people believe that God actually altered the rotation of the earth. 
slowed the rotation down, reversed the rotation, so the sun appeared to move backwards from west to east. Of course, that's got a whole lot of problems. Uh, what do you do with rotational motion of the Earth? If you um, stop the Earth, do the oceans wind up flooding a good chunk of the continent? I mean, there's lots of problems. Some suggest that a dense cloud refracted the sunlight and so that it appeared to move backwards to the east. Some suggest an eclipse of the sun. A commentator, one commentator suggested that when Hezekiah prayed, the Shekinah glory of God, the glory cloud of God that was his very presence, came out of the temple, which was a light brighter than the sun and overpowered the sunlight and made the shadow move. Now that is uh, obviously an interesting one because that would be evidence, clear evidence, to Hezekiah that the Lord God himself answered his prayer when the Shekinah glory God comes out of the temple and overshadows the brightness of the sun. Theologically, I find that one the most satisfying, but the truth of it is we don't know. Scripture does not tell us. But whatever it was, we know that it was observable because we're going to find out in a few minutes the kingdom of Babylon sent visitors to Hezekiah to inquire, quote, of the wonder that happened in the land. So it seems that there was some astronomical event that occurred in the land that was assigned to Hezekiah that could be observed in foreign countries. It wasn't strictly a local phenomenon. So it tells us that this was obviously a measurable, observable event, whatever it was. So however the shadow moved, Hezekiah observed it, concluded that God had heard his prayer. So they put a poultice on his boil. He recovered three days, went up to the house of the Lord to uh, offer praise and thanksgiving. Some commentators believe that as a result of this healing, he composed 15 psalms, one for each day, uh, one for each year that he was going to be living. Actually, if you look in your Bible in Psalms 120 to 134, 120 to 134, there are 15 psalms. And they're called the Song of Ascents, like ascending a stairway, which is, by the way, that word stairway or sundial means ascents or degrees. And some commentators believe that he composed some or all of those particular psalms as a result of his healing. Another perspective on that, showing what followed after this set of miracles, is found in 2 Chronicles 32, verse 23. As a result of this healing, as a result of this astronomical sign, whatever it was, many were bringing gifts to the Lord at Jerusalem and choice presents to Hezekiah, king of Judah, so that he was exalted in the sight of all nations thereafter. Now, verse 27, Hezekiah had immense riches and honor, and he made for himself treasuries for silver, gold, precious stones, spices, shields, and all kinds of valuable articles. Storehouses also for the produce of grain, wine, and oil. Pins for all kinds of cattle and sheepfolds for the flock. He made cities for himself and acquired flocks and herds in abundance, for God had given him very great wealth. Here's the principle. How we manage the resources God entrusts to us reveals our priorities. Is it all about me or is it all about him? How we manage the resources God entrusts to us reveals our priorities. Is it all about me or is it all about him? Now, there's a couple of events that have occurred, I'm just reviewing here, in close sequence that highlighted the God of Judah. First of all, Hezekiah was miraculously healed. All Jerusalem was witness to that. 
And God provided the supernatural sign to Hezekiah that he'd heard his prayer. Secondly, shortly after his healing and this miraculous astronomical sign, God delivered Jerusalem from the Assyrian army by killing 185,000 of their troops. These two events occurred, boom, boom, very close proximity. I have this little theory that maybe the astronomical sign was in fact the event that God used to kill the troops, but I have no proof of that. So don't take that to the bank. Now, Hezekiah, remember, had rebelled against Assyria, and that's what brought on the Assyrian invasion. So when God destroyed the Assyrian army and the Assyrian army went back in shame, Hezekiah became a very popular king among all of Assyrian's enemies. And there were a lot of enemies of Assyria. All the regional kings around Jerusalem were very, very relieved that Assyria had been defeated and sent back to, in shame. And they credited, rightfully so, Hezekiah's God for doing the defeat of that nation. So all these surrounding kings wanted to be on really good terms with Hezekiah. Because if your God can kill 185,000 troops, we want to be your allies, right? We want to be your buds. So Hezekiah became rich and famous. Everybody wanted to be his friend. They brought him lots of presents, lots of wealth, lots of flocks and herds and spices and gold and silver. Question, how did he manage the wealth? and the fame. Sadly, not well. He was proud about it. 2 Kings 20, verse 12. At that time, Merodach Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that Hezekiah had been sick. Hezekiah listened to them and showed them all his treasure house the silver and the gold and the spices and the precious oil and the house of his armor and all that was found in his treasuries. There was nothing in his house nor in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, what did these men say? And from where have they come to you? And Hezekiah said, they have come from a far country, from Babylon. Isaiah said, what have they seen in your house? So Hezekiah answered, they have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing among my treasuries that I've not shown them. 2 Chronicles 32, 31 gives us additional commentary. Even in the matter of the envoys of the rulers of Babylon, who sent to Hezekiah to inquire of the wonder that had happened in the land, God left Hezekiah alone, only to test him, that he might know all that was in his heart. Verse 35. But Hezekiah gave no return for the benefit he received because his heart was proud. Therefore, wrath came on him and on Judah and on Jerusalem. However, Hezekiah humbled the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come on them in the days of Hezekiah. Here's our principle. Earthly prosperity often produces pride. This separates us from God and leads to folly and failure. Earthly prosperity often produces pride. This separates us from God. Pride separates us from God and leads to folly and failure. Let me give you a kind of a sequence of events. All of this occurred within 701 BC, probably within a matter of a very few weeks or months. The king of Assyria, Sennacherib, as we talked about last week, 
conquered most of Judah, threatens to attack Jerusalem. At that same time, Hezekiah becomes mortally ill, prays to the Lord, receives the supernatural sign, healed of his illness. After Hezekiah is healed, God destroys the Assyrian army, 185,000 soldiers. They go back to Nineveh and shame. As a result of the Assyrian army being defeated, Hezekiah becomes rich and famous. Many nations send him gifts. They want to be on his side. And as a result of the miraculous sign that accompanied his healing, Babylon says there's been some astronomical anomalies. Let's go. We've heard of that. It relates to Hezekiah. Let's go find out what's going on. So they send a foreign delegation to Judah. And uh, this international delegation is led by a fellow named Merodach Baladan. He is a Chaldean, Chaldean prince from the Persian area. Now, this guy has led multiple revolts against Assyria. If you look at the map, Nineveh is in the northern part of the Fertile Crescent. You go south about 230 miles, you run into this little city-state called Babylon. Now, Babylon right now is just sort of a small city-state under the thumb of Assyria, Merodach Baladan led a revolt against Assyria, captured Babylon, and ruled it from 722 to 710. Of course, the Assyrians ran him out of Babylon in 710, but he comes back and recaptures it in 705, rules for three years, and they conquered it again. So he runs out of town. So this guy now is coming to Judah looking for allies against Assyria. And since Hezekiah's God has just wiped out 185,000 soldiers, he says Hezekiah would be a really good ally of Babylon, and together we can go take on Assyria, right? But what brings them there is this astronomical wonder that occurred in the land, as well as their desire to persuade him to join an alliance. It's interesting. It says that God left Hezekiah alone so that he would find out what was in his heart. He didn't send Isaiah and say, Isaiah, go talk to Hezekiah. Tell him that there's going to be foreign envoys coming from Babylon and tell him to pay attention. These are not necessarily friends. Have you ever noticed that God sometimes arranges our circumstances to reveal our hearts to ourselves. And when circumstances happen to other people, we say really foolish things like, I would never do what they're doing. Can you believe how they responded to that? I mean, that is so immature. And the Lord is listening. And he says, okay, Let's put your faith into action. And you get a circumstance. And the Lord wants you to know what's in your heart. And so he gives you a circumstance to test you. And when we walk in pride and we insist on having our own way, many times the Lord says, have it your way. And then when we crash and burn, right, we have an opportunity to humble ourselves and come back to the Lord and repent. It's oftentimes easier to stay close to the Lord when we're suffering and struggling than when we're rich and famous. Material wealth and human applause are very seductive. So it seems as though there was a change in Hezekiah's heart after he was healed, after he became rich, after he became internationally famous and popular. 
If you read, there's multiple translations here. There's a version in 2 Kings 20, 2 Chronicles 32, Isaiah 38 and 39. All of them tell the same story we're talking about here, a little different phrases. One of these passages says that when these visitors came from Babylon, one says that Hezekiah listened to his visitors from Babylon, meaning he was influenced by what they said. Another translation says that Hezekiah was pleased when these visitors came from Babylon, meaning he liked the attention that they gave him. Both of those are very dangerous. What is absolutely the dog that did not bark in the, of course, the detective tale of Sherlock Holmes is what is not mentioned here. There is not one reference when you have foreign visitors that Hezekiah is praying. It's not mentioned. He doesn't pray. There's not a mention that he called Isaiah and said, Isaiah, we've got these foreign visitors and they're proposing an alliance. Do you think we should engage ourselves in an alliance? What does God have to say about that? No mention of any of that. It says that God left him alone, so he revealed what's in his heart. So Hezekiah is trusting his own wisdom. God lets him make his own choices. It's fascinating that Hezekiah had just won a great battle with Assyria, and now he's going to fall to an ally. Warren Wiersbe writes, quote, When Satan cannot defeat us as the roaring lion, he often comes as the deceiving serpent. What Assyria could not do with weapons, Babylon did with gifts. Sometimes the world doesn't try and scare you into alliances. It seduces you with promises that if you only just live like us, you'll be rich and famous and popular and yada, yada, yada. And that all comes from, of course, the enemy who's trying to seduce us away from our loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we know that Hezekiah was proud? Well, Scripture says, but we can also look at his behavior. How did he behave? He had lots of stuff, and he couldn't wait to show it off, right? He had nearby nations that sent him a lot of gifts. And remember, they had 185,000 Assyrian corpses and all the affiliated military hardware that they had gotten as a result of God's killing all those soldiers, right? So they had collected quite a lot of stuff. And it says that Babylon showed, I mean, Hezekiah showed his Babylonian visitors everything in his treasuries, his storehouses, his flocks, his herds. And it's interesting He uses the word, my houses, my storehouses, my treasuries. Who did he think owned this stuff? It's all about me, right? He made himself the center of this. And he says, there's nothing in my entire kingdom he did not show them. He really wanted to impress them. Here's the real tragedy. The text says that Babylon came to Judah to inquire about the wonder in the land that what God signed to Hezekiah that he was going to be healed. God was using this astronomical wonder, whatever it was, to bring visitors to Judah to hear about the God of Israel. That was the point. The spiritual point was the evangelization missions of a lost people group 500 miles to the east. This was the perfect opportunity for Hezekiah to tell him about the powerful and loving God of Israel who had rescued Judah 
from the Assyrian army by killing 185,000 of their soldiers. This is the power of Yahweh. He could have told them about the tender, loving mercies of the God of Israel, heard his cry, healed him, right? Mercifully healed him, gave him 15 years more to life. That's the love of Yahweh. What an opportunity for evangelism. He doesn't talk about God at all. He talks about his stuff. He stole the credit and the glory that belonged to God. He completely missed the reason God did what he did. I don't know why, if Hezekiah ever asked himself, why would God give me another 15 years? I mean, why am I so special? Why should I, why do I deserve another 15 years? Even if I don't deserve it, what is God's purpose behind the additional 15 years? This was part of it evangelism, a miracle so that God would receive the glory. An astronomical, supernatural miracle to bring people to Israel to hear about the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Scripture says God's opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. It says that the Lord became angry over his pride. It doesn't tell us how God's wrath was manifested. It doesn't tell us how what God did about it. But it does say that Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem did humble the pride of their heart. And so God withheld his judgment until after Hezekiah's death. Now, God will never let his children sin successfully, ever. So God sent Isaiah to visit Hezekiah. And Isaiah said to him, where do these people come from? What do they have to say? Well, Hezekiah never said what they said. But he did say where they came from. He said they come from the land of Shrek, far, far away, right? So they're not going to be a threat to us. They're so far away, there's no threat. But he said, I showed them everything in the kingdom, uh, but they're so far away, they won't ever be a problem to us. Have you ever noticed that arrogance leads to stupidity? Pride leads to foolishness. And his pride led him to expose not just the wealth of the nation, he exposed all the defenses the armory, the towers, the military, everything he showed in the whole nine yards. The reality is, since he had become rich and famous, he had probably been neglecting his spiritual disciplines. And I will tell you that is terribly easy to do. I have the hardest time disciplining myself for spiritual disciplines when I'm out of my normal routine. I am a huge believer in routine. If you have routine habits, it will keep you doing what you need to do whether or not you feel like it. But when you're in a different location, you're traveling, et cetera, et cetera, it's very difficult to stay in that routine, and I think that happened to him. And God now tells Hezekiah, here's what's going to become of all those treasures that you now worship. Verse 16. And Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming. When all that is in your house and all your fathers have laid up in store to this day will be carried to Babylon, nothing shall be left, says the Lord. Verse 18, some of your sons who shall issue from you, whom you will beget, will be taken away and they will become officials in the palace of the king of Babylon. And Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord which you have spoken is good, for he thought, is it not so, if there will be peace and truth in my days? Now, the rest of the acts of Hezekiah with all his mount and how he made the pool and the conduit and brought water into the city 
Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Hezekiah slept with his fathers, and Manasseh and became king in his place. Here's our principle. Complacency towards God's word is sin. Complacency towards God's word is sin. So Isaiah says, Hezekiah, everything in your house that you're so proud of, every last stick of furniture uh, that was stored up from all your previous kings, including Solomon, is going to be carried away to Babylon. That's amazing prophecy. At this time, currently, 701, Babylon's just a small city-state, ragtag city-state. Assyria's the world power. Isaiah is prophesying the rise and fall of two world empires. And they wouldn't just come to take his wealth. They would come and enslave his sons who had not even yet been born. So apparently they didn't have any sons at this time because the text says your sons who will be born to you, i.e. future tense, after 701, after age 39, during the 15 years of additional life, he's going to have sons. He's going to have family at that point in time. And the Babylonians are, Babylonians are coming and enslave some of those sons, and they're going to indoctrinate them in the pagan belief system of Babylon. So instead of serving the God of Israel, his sons are going to serve foreign gods as captives in Babylon. Hezekiah's pride set Judah up as a prime target for the up-and-coming Babylonian Empire because these people now knew where all the money was. Willie Sutton said, I, had, I robbed banks because what? It's where the money is. Hezekiah had shown the entire treasure chest to an up-and-coming world empire who was going to be back in 605. Nebuchadnezzar would come three times, and all the wealth that Judah had stored up would be taken, and nothing would be left. God was reminding Hezekiah, you don't own anything. You are a manager. You are a steward. I am the owner. So how does Hezekiah respond? Very casually, apparently. It's interesting. He doesn't repent. He doesn't call for Isaiah to pray for him. He doesn't tear out his clothes, tear his clothes, put sackcloth on, doesn't go into the house of the Lord, doesn't pray for forgiveness. He's just been told, you're going to be invaded, everything's going to be taken away, and your sons are going to be made captives. And he goes, well, the word of the Lord is good. And he rationalizes because he says, it won't happen in my lifetime. Not my problem. As long as whatever peace and truth reign in my lifetime, whatever happens in the next generation is not my problem. You and I know people who have said, and I have heard some of you say, quote, after I'm gone, it's not my problem. I'll let the kids deal with it. Some of the things your children will say about you if you leave them a mess. Some people don't have a will or a trust completed. They figure, well, the kids will, they'll, 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 they'll all settle it evenly. They love each other. I've seen relationships broken over a $5 dish because mom loved you more than she loved me. Some people leave a house full of stuff that their kids are going to have to sort out, fight over, clean up, burn. Your treasures are their trash. Mark it. Some people don't have a care plan when they can't take care of themselves, and they say, well, my children will take care of me. Really? 
Be careful with that assumption. Some people leave a relational mess behind because they have not pursued forgiveness and reconciliation. You know, you can't fix everything before you die. I get it. But you can pray and say, Lord, what is it you want me to do today? And am I being obedient to you today so that when I'm gone, I have not left anything undone of what you want me to do? You want to stand before the Lord and say, Lord, everything you called me to do, I've done. And if there's unfinished business, that's you to deal with my children or grandchildren or whatever on. I've been obedient every step of the way. That's all you can do at that point. So what happened after Hezekiah died? Well, his oldest son, Manasseh, was born three years after his healing. Began to reign at age 12. 12 and 3 is 15. So Hezekiah died right on schedule. And the text says that Manasseh did more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the sons of Israel. He was the worst king in Judah's history, right up there where they had. He undid every single good thing his father Hezekiah had done. And God said his evil is what directly led to Judah's exile from the land into 70 years of Babylonian captivity. Which makes you wonder, Hezekiah says, Lord, let me live, let me live. And God says, fine, I'll give you 15 years. And God knew that Manasseh was going to be born in that 15 years and undo every good thing that Hezekiah had done. I tremble when I pray because I don't know the consequences of what I'm asking for. We pray for things, and we should. We should. God says, bring it to me. I'm your father. And we say, God, would you do blah, blah, blah? And we can't think past lunchtime, and that's what our perspective. And God is thinking about eternity. I'm sure Hezekiah had no clue that the son of his, you know, he was 40 years old probably when Manasseh was born, 40, 40 41. I expect that he probably doted on this child. He might have actually spoiled him rotten. You know, he didn't have a kid. This is the first one, et cetera, et cetera. But nonetheless, God does know the consequences of your prayer request. And when he says yes, when he says no, when he says wait, trust him. Father really does know best. He has eternity in mind. And of course, we always want Peace and safety, health and wealth, no pain, especially no pain, Lord, right now. And the Lord knows the consequences of our request. So when you pray, always end your prayers like Jesus. In the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but yours be done. Because you know what is best. And as much as we love our children and our grandchildren and our nieces and nephews, blah, blah, blah. God loves them more. And he has plans for their long-term eternal best as well, which might involve plans that are different from ours. So this requires a fair amount of humility, I think. So in, re in, in recapping this, the issue is not, are you going to die? We know that. The issue is, are you ready to die today? So the question is, if you got a phone call this afternoon that says you have incurable XYZ, set your house in order, you're going to die. 
How would that change your priorities? My question is, why don't you have the priorities change now? Start doing what's eternally important and stop being distracted by a lot of stuff that won't matter if you're going to be dead in two weeks anyway. I'm not saying you shouldn't do the routine. Sometimes the custodial is important. I'm not saying that. I'm saying put an eternal overlay over what you're doing today and say, it does this matter for eternity? Number two, we are responsible to honor God with our lives regardless of how he answers our prayers. We read this and we go, how cool. God answered his prayer before Isaiah left the palace. I mean, that was probably two minutes. God had answered a prayer. I mean, wouldn't that be nice? Especially, I'm going to heal you. I'm going to give you 15 years. I mean, what was there not for Hezekiah to like? Suppose God says no to your prayer request. You're still responsible to honor God with how you live regardless of the answer because your Father knows best. And if God blesses you with wealth and riches and fame and fortune and all that other stuff, we don't own any of that. We're responsible to manage the resources that belongs to him. He just entrusts it to us. And sometimes when we receive God's blessings, we abuse them because we think that we got them because we are so smart than all those other people, right? No, everything we have is because of the blessing of the Lord. And he knows what we can handle and he will give us wisdom to manage it if we ask him, right? Earthly prosperity often produces pride. Pride always separates us from God. Being separated from God reliably leads to stuck on stupid, spiritually. And lastly, when you know what God says in his word, you say, well, if Isaiah came to talk to me, baby, I'd be paying attention. Well, let me tell you, every time you read this, God himself, the Holy Spirit, is talking to you. You need a higher power source? You don't need a prophet. You've got the Holy Spirit himself. And when he convicts you in this book and he says, my child, here's what I want you to do. How do you respond? Are you casual? Do you say, well, Lord, let me think about that. God, I'm not, is this really you talking? Maybe this is my, just my conscience. And I get my iron out and I sear my conscience, you know? Complacency towards God's word is sin. And Hezekiah, God said his heart was proud because he didn't take me seriously and he didn't repent. Be very careful when you know God's word to not obey it, James tells us, it is sin. Okay. Got enough to think about this week? I do love you, and I know that you know. And God knows that you know. So now your responsibility is to do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to manabiblepodcast at gmail.com, and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today, and now that you know, do.